lovely kids talk. God bless you. Uh, and, and lovely worship time too, guys. God bless you. When I was just 16, it, it, it's not long ago. It doesn't seem long ago. When I was just 16, I remember I hadn't been converted long. We, we were doing an all-night prayer meeting in my church. Uh, and in the early hours of the morning, here we were, 16-year-olds and a bunch of others, being led by our leader, and we were praying for the walls of the church, casting out the demons that reside there. What do you make of that? Yeah, hey, I told you not to, whoa, 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 whoa. give me a chance to get to my sermon, I'm kidding. Uh, but no, really, and I was only young, and I didn't know what to make of it, but it's what I did. I want to look at that with you because here's a chapter of the Bible that, that opens our eyes to a whole world that we may not know exists. But here's the question I want to ask is, does the Bible call us to spiritual warfare? Do demons live in church walls or inhabit streets and cities? Does the Bible instruct us to, direct, to directly engage with them? Are some of the questions that we're looking at in Daniel? Come with me and see what we see. Okay, hope and grace is our heading. It's what we're looking at together. And we're going to break away from tradition. I'm a real strong tradition breaker, okay? Uh, we want to break away from tradition, and we're going to have two subheadings instead of one. <laughs> How about that, eh? Two subheadings. The first one is 90% of the sermon. 10% is the second subheading. So if you're thinking, if you spent this long on subheading one, what's going to happen to my dinner? Okay, bear with me, right? Okay, so verse one. Our headings will come up later. Let me just start with a text. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, so this is two years after Daniel's prayer of chapter nine. So two whole years have passed. Okay, the people have returned to Israel, which means what's happened to Daniel's prayers? God's answered them. Hallelujah, okay? So that was chapter 9. Now, let me just take you to Ezra 1. Can you, do you remember the book of Ezra? In the year, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he proclaimed that the Israelites, verse 3, they could go back to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild their temple. Here's something about prayer, and here's what we pray. God listens and moves people. God stirred the heart of the most powerful man in the world to do his bidding. So what? Pray. Why else will we pray otherwise? It's why we pray. God answers prayer. The Jews are back in the land. But it's two years on now. They've been back for two years. It's 537 BC. Daniel is in retirement. Hey. We know that because he tells us in Daniel chapter 1 that he only served Cyrus up until his first year. This is year three. This is year three. Daniel now is in retirement. But he hasn't returned to the land. Have a think about it. Why do you think he hasn't returned? He's old. Yeah, we know about that, don't we, Graham? We know about that. Yeah, yeah. No doubt it's because he's old. It's an arduous journey. I mean, you didn't travel in your SUV across desert terrain. <laughs> you had a donkey or you walked, probably. He's old, but it's something more too. I think there's two things. One is old. What's this, what do you think the second reason would be why he's not back there? 
well, God told them all to go. But good one, uh, uh, Meg. They're all meant to go. The ones that haven't gone are in disobedience. But Daniel's not in disobedience. Why hasn't Daniel gone? And we don't know. This is conjecture. Possibly, yeah, another one. You're way ahead of me. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that one, Meg. Thank you. The one I was thinking of, and it is conjecture, is that the king wouldn't let him go. He's retired, but he wants him on hand. You know, just in case he wants his bottom wife or something doing. You know, he won't let him go. Uh, I can only assume it's that, because look, it is somebody, it is, it is someone who wanted to be in the land of Israel, it was Daniel. And so he's still there. Look, we're told he's standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris there, okay? Perhaps he's old. Perhaps the king's just keeping him back. For whatever reason, he's there, but he's troubled. Look at this, verse 2. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine. I used no lotions. I know this sounds weird for a bloke to use lotions, but you use them, don't you, Graham? Yeah, look, oh, th this lotion, <laughs> yeah, man, thank you. This lotion is, you know, it, it's, look, you must know this. What's it like in the summer here in December? And dry. This is, you know, this guy's putting himself through difficulty here. His skin is cracking. He's not eating choice food, okay? It, it tells you at least back in chapter one that he, he didn't live and exist of a, diet of vegetables, whatever he did in chapter 1 changed after a while. But here, he's fasting. Fasting doesn't have to be a complete cessation of food. It can just be some of your favorite things. Cream donuts, for example. Okay? No one touched the cream donuts in the kitchen. Okay? <laughs> so he's fasting from choice foods, from lotions. It's, it's humbling. He's humbling himself before God. He's troubled, and he wants to be sure that God is aware of how serious Daniel is about prayer. Okay? So, the Israelites are back. It's been a couple of years. The book of Ezra tells us, if you've read Ezra, things don't go to plan. There's all kinds of resistance. Remember, remember we've been saying this. The return from exile wasn't really the return from exile the return is yet to come. It's future. It's the end of the world. We'll see that in chapters 11 and 12. And so he's in earnest prayer. Listen to this. Uh, verse 4, how God responds to him again. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, and there I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen. He's having a vision. It's a supernatural vision. He's seen realities of celestial beings. He had people with him, but they're scarpered. Listen to this. Look, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision because the men who were with me, when they saw it, or when they were there, they didn't see, but they were there. They were overwhelmed and they fled. I was the last one there, last man standing. You know, it's one of those situations, you know, you turn around and you think, I'm sure I was with somebody. They're all gone. So Daniel's the only one left. It's a bit like the Damascus experience when Paul sees a vision and none of his companions do. And so as the narrative pans out now, I want to show you what's going on here. It's possible there's one figure. I think there's two. The first one, I'm sure, is... Well, tell me, who do you think this sounds like? Verse 6. 
His face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs are like a gleam, like burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Goodness sake, oh, that was a mistake, uh, Ricky, never mind. Who does he sound like? Jesus, because Revelation chapter 1 describes him, and what does he say about him? They're almost identical terms. This is Jesus. It's got to be Jesus. And that's why I think there's more than one figure here, because the next figure certainly isn't like Jesus. Let me take you to the next figure. Verse 8, or uh, verse 10, a hand touched me, and I was trembling. And he says to him, Daniel, you're highly esteemed. A, a bit later in verse 13, we'll just jump to it, if I may. It's the next slide, Ricky. Uh, we're told that he needed help. I have come in response to them, but the prince of Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. This guy who touches Daniel needed help. Does that sound like Jesus? It doesn't, does it? So we can assume there's more than one character in the vision. Jesus is standing there. He sees him. He's come to assure Daniel that he's highly esteemed. He's loved. But the angel does his bidding. You know, it's the, the angel does the work. And I think he's the second character here. Hand touch me. Uh, and, um, and he speaks to him, tells him that he's highly esteemed. We can hardly imagine the Son of God needing help. The next one, verse 14 I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. It's lovely. We've said already that God answers prayer. In chapter 9, he prayed earnestly. God answered him. In chapter 10, he's again in earnest prayer. And again, God answers him. Listen to this. I've come to explain to you what will happen in the future. Daniel's praying for his people that in turmoil back in the land. The exile hasn't unraveled the way they expected. But the answer to his prayer is about the future. Why? Daniel's interested in Israel and the trouble they're in. God wants to tell him about the future. Why? Yes, of what exactly, Morag? Yeah. That's it. His point is, and we need to hear this message, don't we? Look, I know your circumstances are difficult today. And the solution to your problem is the future. I want you to know that whatever difficulty you're in now, I've got a handle on the future. And your end is spectacular. It's to keep us going. He doesn't always deliver. He does sometimes, and we pray and we seek it. He doesn't always heal. He does sometimes, and we pray and seek it. He doesn't always change our circumstances. We pray and we seek it. But he does promise that the end is glorious. And that's what drives you on. Look, if you ever run a marathon, okay, or if the golf yesterday was a marathon, you know, I'm sure some of our members were only thinking about the beer at the end. Not that we had any beer. <laughs> okay. It, it, it's what keeps you going. And Daniel is told, we'll see in the next couple of weeks, in 11 and 12, that the answer he's looking for is not in a temporary solution. We keep forgetting that whatever God does for us today is temporary. We may get healed. 
but I can guarantee you you'll face it again. Seriously, it's just temporary fixes. And what God is really interested in is a lasting and an eternal fix. And so he says to Daniel, look, here's the future. Set your heart on that. Let that help you through present difficulties. And so we move on. We move on. And we're virtually into chapters 11 and 12 now, but I'm not going to let you go home just yet. I want, to go, I want to now unravel something of what we take away from what's going on in chapter 10. There's something to be gained. It's really an introduction to 11 and 12. It's those three chapters are one portion. 10 is an introduction. But there's something here which I don't want to skip over. I want to challenge and speak about what's going on. You may disagree. You're welcome to disagree. You can stone me. But you've called me to preach the truth to you as I see it. And so here's what I see going on here. Two things in these texts. Here they are. Angels, are de- angels and demons are active in our world. Affecting. That should be not, af- not affecting. Affecting. Angels and demons are active in our world. Affecting world history. It's the first thing we see here. You can't get away from it. And I'm going to develop that now. Second thing we'll see, to be very brief at the end. God's love for his people overcomes all evil in richness. It's two main themes. The job of the preacher is not to pick his favorite hobby horses when he reads a chapter of the Bible. It's to pick out what that chapter is saying. These are the two themes of the chapter. Number one, angels and demons are active in our world, affecting world history. Number two, God's love for his people overcomes all evil in richness. Let's deal with the first one. This is where most of our time will be spent Angels or demons are active in our world, affecting world history. Verse 12 and 13. Listen to this. The prince. So verse 12, I've come, the angel, along with Jesus, I've come in response to Daniel's prayer, okay? But, verse 13, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Same thing he said in verse 20. There's more in verse 20. Soon I will return to fight again against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Okay? But first, let me tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me, helped him in the battle. Against them, against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, except Michael, your prince, the higher angel. Can you see what's going on? It's loaded. It's loaded, and this chapter has done a lot of mileage around the Christian world, and I'm going I'm to stamp on some of it today, but it's done a lot of mileage, okay? It's loaded. This is what he's saying. Demonic beings have charge over territories. You can't get away from it. It's truth, okay? It's there. The fact that they resisted, resisted the angel uh, that was trying to reach Daniel suggests that demons are bent on resisting God's purposes. You see, God's purpose was for this angel to take an answer of prayer to Daniel. These demonic principalities of powers are resisting that. Their purpose, it seems, amongst other things, is to resist God's purposes. Number one, their second purpose, notice the fact that one is fighting another. Did you notice that? The demon of Persia will soon fight the demon of Greece. Can you see that in verse 20? Okay, now how does this turn out in history? Yeah, Greece fight Persia, Alexander the Great takes on the Persian kingdom, and Alexander the Great comes on top. What it tells you is this, 
complicit in Alexander the Great's overthrowing of Persia, complicit in that reality on the ground, was what? Demonic activity. You can't get away from it. It's, it's black and white. Complicit in Alexander the Great's victory over Greece was demonic activity. And by association, you have to assume that this is the general standard of things in our world. In fact, Paul says so. Listen to this, Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So into New Testament times, nothing has changed. There's demonic forces at work in our world, and they are affecting world history. They seem to be assigned to certain fact the outcome of what happens in our world. That's the reality. I accept that. I'm preaching what I see in the Bible. Let me just have World 2, 1939 to 1945. The bloodiest war in the history of the world. Over 30 countries, including you guys. Yeah? You were involved, weren't you? I know you were involved. Uh, uh, 30 countries were involved, he saw casualties of an estimated, does anyone know? Six million in the Holocaust alone, 21 million in Russia, 85 million estimated. The bloodiest war in the history of the world. And all because of Hitler. His uh, ambitions for world dominion, which was triggered by him entering Poland, triggered World War II and cost 85 million lives, most of whom were civilians. Who was behind that? Yes, Hitler. Yes, Hitler. Hitler is absolutely complicit. He's involved. He's responsible. But in addition, the evil one. So, Yes, demonic angels. If we're to believe Daniel 10 and Paul in Ephesians 6, then demonic influences were complicit in Hitler's ambitions and the result of that in our world. Friends, this is real. I want the first thing I want to state. It's real. Angels and demons are active in our world, affecting world history. Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what should our response be? And this is where, where you, you may take some thinking about what should our response be to this reality, to the demonic? Should it be, and before you answer, because you may get embarrassed, just have a listen. Should it be spiritual mapping, drawing up a list of locations and the demons that are specific to that location? Does some Christians do that? Should it be to directly engage with these territory demons in spiritual warfare? Some Christians do that. Should it be to cast out demons by naming them individually? Some Christians practice that. Should we be casting out the demons in the John Poole Hall from these walls? from these platforms. Some Christians will suggest so. I did it when I was 16. Hey, you, you, knew, you know this is coming, don't you? 
I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. Not because I don't like it, but I'm looking for a biblical warrant. The emphasis we place on this church is all over the website. We are Bible-centered. That means everything we do, we don't just make it up. Christians can't make up stuff. We have to anchor everything we do on the text of Scripture. That doesn't mean I can take a reality and twist it to suit my end. I have to anchor it. So let me anchor in Scripture what we're to do. We, we've said it's Scripture, there's spiritual warfare. We've said it's Scripture, there's territorial demons. We've said it's Scripture that they affect world history. But the response has got to be in Scripture too. You see that? The response has got to be in Scripture too. And let me show you the scriptural response to these realities because it's my concern, friends, as much as these things are active in our world, some sections of the church have gone so far from the text of scripture that they're way out there, on a limb, up the creek, without any paddles whatsoever. What I mean is they've taken truth and they've gone so far up the river that they're no longer so doing anything that can be associated with that truth. And I want to show you what scripture says about our response to the truths that we've discerned. First of all, let me take you back to Ephesians 6 because we are living in within the new covenant of structure, Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So there's definitely a spiritual battle. Okay? Ephesians makes that clear. But here's the first thing that's different from Daniel to Ephesians 6. And you'll get it as I'm saying it. These demons and their captain, the devil, have been mortally wounded, defeated, are in disarray, and in a, reti- a retreat since what event? Amen! That's the first thing you have to remember in spiritual warfare, that the situation in Daniel is different to the situation in Ephesians 6, because since then, our captain has entered the arena. He has taken on darkness by its... What's that called when you do that to somebody? Scruff of the neck. Okay, And he has defeated them. Listen to this, Genesis 3. What will Jesus do to Satan and to his demons? He will crush their heads. You don't survive the crushing of a head. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's made a public spectacle of them. He humiliated them. The cross is humiliation for the devil. Every time you wear the cross and wear them, you are humiliating the devil because you're reminding him that on that cross, he was destroyed, crushed, disarmed, humiliated, made a spectacle of. Listen to this, Colossians 2, he triumphed over them by the cross. So spiritual mapping and spiritual warfare has to take the triumph of the cross into account. You have to, because it's occurred. And that triumph surely, surely changes things to some degree at least. Surely, otherwise, look, if the triumph doesn't change anything, it's hardly triumph. Okay? It changes things. Okay, what does it change? So, the Prince of Heaven, Jesus, crushed the Prince of the, this world. Okay? Be sure that our actions, friends, aren't undermining the cross. It's the only thing we've got. It's all we've got. 
the cross. It's the heart of Christianity. And we can, without knowing it, be undermining our confidence and power in it. We can sleep in peace at night because of the cross. Because our enemy is defeated. He's on the run. He's, he's on in retreat. That's the first thing. Our enemy is defeated. Secondly, there is nevertheless still a spiritual warfare to engage in. Ephesians makes that clear. So we're not suggesting that this operation completely eliminated all necessity for warfare because just like Hitler, I mean, any of you who know about World War I, no, when, when, when the Allies invaded Normandy and landed on the beaches, that was the end of the war. That was a fatal blow to Hitler. There was no way he could win the war from then. Okay. Did, the, did Hitler give up and did the, did the fighting and killing stop? No. It got worse, in fact. Even though he was defeated, even though there was no way he could win, the devil is defeated, he's on his retreat, but it doesn't mean he's given up the fight. If you ever chopped the head of a snake off, or a chicken, exactly, exactly, exactly. I'm not, not, not recommending that, okay? Okay, yeah, definitely not recommending that. So, so <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not recommending that. There is still a warfare of a sorts with a retreating army. Listen to this. So Ephesians 6 tells, uh, tells us this, and I think this is what Ephesians 6 is about. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. There is still a spiritual warfare, but I want to suggest, and don't stone me, it looks very different to the spiritual warfare that we mostly hear about amongst some Christians. A text without a context is a pretext to a proof text. What's a proof text? I believe this. Here's a text that says it. Okay? It's the terrible way to do the Bible. Okay? No, no, no. It's here's a text, here's the context, here's what it is, this is what I learned from it. That's how you handle the Bible. So if Ephesians 6, 13 is speaking about spiritual warfare, what would you expect to happen in the rest of those verses? Back it up. Explain it. Give it its context. Tell you what it means. He just told you you're in spiritual warfare. You're thinking, okay, great. I'm ready. But what is it? And so he, you'd expect him to tell you, wouldn't you? And he does tell you. Listen to what this warfare is. Listen to how it looks. Okay, verse 14. S so this is the warfare. Stand firm then with a belt buckled around your waist and with a breastplate. So let me go to verse 13. The first thing he says, so you're in a spiritual warfare that you may stand your ground. The first thing about spiritual warfare is standing our ground. In faith. Okay, the next time you can't be bothered about Christianity, you've lost the spiritual battle. Okay? It's standing your ground. Verse 14, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, the uh, waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place. What are they speaking about? What's the buckle of truth? The truth of our faith. The breastplate of righteousness, what's that? The righteousness of Christ. So this is speaking about in the battle, being made righteous in God's sight and being truthful within that. That's battle. The second part of the battle, verse 15, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. How are we doing battle according to, the, according to these feet? Spreading the good news is spiritual warfare. Do you see that? 
Verse 16, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It's a battle. Look, this is battle language, but what are they doing? How is he fighting it in verse 16? The shield of faith. I'm standing on what I believe. When the devil plants a thought in my heart that God is not real, what do I do? I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. It's the shield of faith. That's spiritual battle. Which, which you can extinguish all the arrows of the evil one. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation is my reassurance of salvation, of a plan of God working out in my life that I was saved, I, I was died for, I was saved, I'm being kept. Jesus is walking with me. I'm going to make it to heaven. There's a paradise waiting for me. That's the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which explains what is that? The word, what do you think we're doing right now? Spiritual warfare. You are in spiritual warfare. Because we are now handling the word of truth. And verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. And be alert, always praying for the saints. When Look, I saw this, this morning two people there at the back engaged in prayer. When I saw that, I was witnessing what? Spiritual warfare. As far as I'm aware, they weren't naming demons. They weren't casting out any demons. But they were in spiritual warfare. Friends, uh, when we look at Ephesians 6, the quintessential New Testament passage about spiritual warfare, it tells you what it is. Without having to make stupid guesses, without having to do exegetical somersaults, it tells you what it is, and it tells you it's simply the Christian life. Spiritual warfare is simply the Christian life. How much in those verses did we hear about spiritual mapping, naming demons, personally engaging them? How much is said in there? Not a word. Not a word. Can you see what I'm saying? We, 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 we're leaving the text of Scripture when we're out there. Let me give you more. So the battle has been won by Jesus. We're the mopping up team. When we sang earlier, we were doing spiritual warfare. When the young lady to my right, uh, Meg, uh, I have these moments, Meg, uh, <laughs> was talking to the children, she was doing spiritual warfare. When the musicians led us in worship, they were doing spiritual warfare. Or when Lee read the scriptures, he was doing spiritual warfare. In fact, when he was dunked in water, along with Misha, he was taking on the principalities and powers of this dark world. That's spiritual warfare. When you go out from this today and live your Christian life, and when you speak a word for Jesus, you're doing spiritual warfare. When you witness to your neighbor, you're doing spiritual warfare. When you're down on your knees and you're pleading for somebody, for God to deliver them or to help them or to heal them, you're doing spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, friends, I want to suggest is far more mundane than the enthusiasts would want us to believe. And here's the thing, here's the thing, the Bible nowhere instructs us to bind territorial spirits. You cannot give me a single text in scripture. It nowhere tells us to directly engage with them. In fact, the only person in the whole of scripture who bound territorial spirits was who? Jesus. Jesus. Listen to this. It's Mark 3. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first 
Binds a strong man. When did he do that? Thinking caps, when did he do that? On the cross. There was a one-time event, and Jesus did it, and he bound him and frustrated him. Let me ask you, do you really think that if Jesus hadn't bound the devil, you could walk into Afghanistan and pluck out a soul for Jesus? Because Christian missionaries are doing that all the time out there. The reason they can enter his house and steal souls is because a strong man is bound. Jesus bound him. The only reference to binding in the New Testament, friends, is the binding that Jesus did on the cross towards Satan. There's no biblical warrant for any other binding. In fact, let me take you to Daniel, the one some Christians love. Okay, so here's the territorial spirits. Here's they are active. How much binding and naming and exorcism did Daniel do? Nobody. Who did the binding? Who did the fighting? Who did the battle? The angels. angels. Not Daniel. So the, the quintessential chapter that Christians use for this stuff, it's not even happening in there. It's not even happening in there. Daniel isn't doing binding and casting out and naming. He's just praying to Jesus for his people. The angels, they're the warriors. You see, spiritual warfare happens by proxy. What do I mean by that? Someone does it on our behalf. Jesus did it ultimately on the cross. And now, 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 the angelic realm, the prince of Persia, fights against not you and me, friends. We don't take him on. He's taken on by angels. They're the ones who do the grown-up stuff. Okay? We're just the kids here, right? We're just following after him. We hype him. We just live our Christian life. That's the warfare. So let me deal with another area. That's spiritual warfare. That's spiritual mapping. That's naming demons. That's casting out demons. I'll come back to that in a second. What about this one? Please, again, look. Look, you pay me for this. Okay? If you don't like it, you can sack me. Right. Right. So someone has got a, sp- a lost in disposition, which is 90% of guys, by the way, just in case you didn't know. Okay? And I'm being serious. Okay? 90% of guys. But someone's got a particular issue with lusting, okay, or a particular issue with anger, a particular issue with vindictiveness, or a particular issue with covetousness, all the things that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 5. Listen to this, Matthew 5, 28. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, he's speaking about lust, someone who's got an issue with lust. What's the remedy he gives for that? Yeah, it's not casting out the, the, the spirit of lust. It's not naming or discerning what spirit is in that man and delivering him from it. I mean, um, maybe Jesus is a bit thick. Possibly not. Can you see the point? He doesn't tell us to name a demon and cast it out. What does he tell the guy to do? The next verse, what does he tell him to do with 29? He's telling him to deal with it for a start. And he's telling him, look, if you're right, it causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. What does that mean? That means I've got to deal with it. Okay? And stop blaming some spirit for it. I've got to deal with it. It's my corrupt nature. I've got to deal with it. Okay? It, me- it means I've got a great grip on it. It means I might need to seek help. Okay? I might have to ask someone to help me. I might have to ask if I've got an issue with internet porn. I might have to ask someone to watch my computer for me. 
If there's an issue with, with, with uh, anger, I might have to ask someone to, to speak to me and ask me every week, how am I doing with that issue? See, I need to get help. I, I might have to put things into place. I might have to put structures into place. I might have to fast and pray and ask for God's help, but I'm never anywhere commanded to cast out a demon of lust. Ever, anywhere in the scriptures. We don't get that stuff from the Bible. It's nonsense. We don't find it in the Bible. In fact, when we look at Paul and he deals with a man who has a lost issue, this guy, do you know what he's doing? It's disgusting. He's sleeping, having sex with his stepmother. That is, it's just despicable. We can't hardly imagine it, can we? Does Paul tell the church to cast out the spirit of lust? What does he tell him to do? Cast out the man. That's what he says. Get rid of him. You don't want people like that in your midst because that kind, of, that kind of anchorage in sin will only spread to the rest of the congregation. Before you know it, you'll all be jumping into bed with somebody. <laughs> that's his, no, that's seriously, that's his point. Yeah, I mean, it's okay with Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You don't have to go to a separate room, Jim. You can keep your bed, okay? Okay. Just make him sleep as far away from the other side of the bed as you possibly can. Right. Okay. Right. So his point is, listen, this is what he said to him. Not cast out the spirit of lust. Hand this man over to Satan, which simply means excommunication. Get rid of him. If you don't like that, then you don't like Jesus. Church discipline is a necessary factor in church life. And when someone won't give up on sin, we have to say to them, you don't belong. You're a danger to this fellowship. And this man isn't to have demons cast out of him. He's to go. Why do you think they want to sh- get, get him out of the church? What, what are they hoping he will do? Wake him up. Make him repent. In fact, Paul says, so that his spirit may be saved. That's the idea. He's like, look, if we condone this, you'll carry on doing it. But if we expel you, you may wake up, you may be repentant, and we can have you back. And in 2 Corinthians 2, they have him back. And so the issue is, friends, is Paul isn't casting out demons left, right, and center. In fact, when we read from Acts to Revelation, do you know, in the whole of the New Testament, the whole of the New Testament, there's only Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 19 that even talk about demons. In chapter 16, Paul casts out a demon from, from the slave girl who's prophesying. And in Acts 19, we hear Peter's garments are able to cast out demons. And in the one instance we have in the New Testament of real people doing exorcism, what happens to them? They get beaten up, man. Listen to this in Acts 19. One day the evil spirit answered these people who are trying to do exorcisms. Jesus I know and Paul I know. Notice there's no one else that knows there. Just these two figures, the greatest Christian ever to live than Jesus himself. And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It's a dangerous thing to engage demons. Don't do it, Christian. It's a dangerous thing. It's an incredibly dangerous thing. You're opening yourselves up to all kinds of realities. And yet it seems to me that exorcisms are the dish of the day in some Christian circles. I don't know how you made that up with with Acts to Revelation, only two chapters that even speak about demons, and the one is to tell you not to do it. 
or at least to be wary to do it. So here's the point, Christian. Beware of the strange things that happen in the name of Jesus. If you really are a Bible-centered church, if, you, if we're not, you can find churches that are not Bible-centered, but if we really are Bible-centered, we have to find what we do in the text of Scripture. There's going to be a text that tells us to do it. It can't just be a description of something that happened. There has to be a text that says, here's the reality, I want you to do this. Salvation, I want you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a prescriptive text, you see. There has to be a text that tells us to do it. There's not a single text that tells us that this is this, this kind of stuff. There are texts to suggest that we may perform exorcisms. There are. Possibly Mark 16, although that's disputed whether or not it's in the, even in the Bible. But certainly Paul did it. There may well be an occasion, of course, where we are called to actually, together as a group of strong Christians, to take some form of spiritual action against a demon-possessed person. person. There may well be. But I'm sure if, if the New Testament is anything to go by, it's really, really rare. And most of the time, the God just needs to get a grip and say no to his sin and put structures in place to stop it. And really, Christians, I mean, there may be demons in this area, there may be demons at work in this building, I don't doubt that. I, 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 I'm pretty sure there's hundreds here right now. I know they'd be here right now. Be yes. And why are they shaking in their boots? And what's up, what are we doing with his, his word? We're releasing it. We're doing warfare with them. I don't have to turn to them. I don't have to name them. I don't have to register them. I don't have to find out who's in control of where. It's, that's a reality. I don't have to do any of that. I seek Jesus. I live my Christian life. And as I live my Christian life, and as I seek Jesus, he sends his angelic beings who apprehend them, who do struggle with them, who, who put them down, who remind them that they're defeated, that they're on their way out, that they're yes to these creatures, and that they better get out of here. And the word of God stings and hurts and injures demons. It doesn't need me to engage them. Because friends, I would, as your pastor, discourage it. Unless you're, you're especially apt and have, have had some experience I know, with some strong Christians. And don't look for them in every nut cranny. They're just not there. Angels and demons are active in our world. They are affecting our history. But Jesus has dealt with them. Angels fight for us. We are called to do spiritual warfare by living the Christian life. One last. Can you give me two minutes to finish? Otherwise, I'm going to have to do the whole of chapter 10 all over again next week. <laughs> My second point. God's love for his people overcomes all evil. I, I want to finish on a positive note. God's love for his people overcomes all evil. Daniel has been troubled in his, because of the plight of his people. He seeks God in earnest prayer. He's is God sends his angel and Jesus comes. I think that's lovely. He thinks it's lovely. Listen to this. Jesus could have just sent his angel, couldn't he? But he comes too. It's just lovely. He takes the trouble to come and stand there. Friends, Jesus takes the trouble to come when you're hurting. Do you know that? Yes, angels do his bidding. But he doesn't just send angels. He comes. What's he tell us in Matthew 28? 
when he sends us out into the commission, come into all the world, make disciples of all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you. He comes, he comes to Daniel. We can be sure he comes to us. Look how he speaks about Daniel. Oh, highly esteemed one. You read that and you think, I, jealousy, don't you? Think, oh, I wish God would say that about me. He does. He does. He thinks it of you. Listen to this. Let me take you to 1 John 1, 3. How great is the love the Father lavished on us that we should be called. Listen to this. You rotten, dirtballs, scoundrels, sinners. That's what we are, isn't it? But what does he call us? Yeah. How do you feel about your son? I can't forget. Do you have a son? Yeah. How do you feel about your son? You love him. In fact, he calls us children. In fact, he lavishes love on us. Whatever's happened to Daniel, friends, there's a mirror of it in the New Testament. And listen to this. Romans 8, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not even the demons. It's why I don't care about them. Because they can't separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus. Christian, you are loved. You are highly esteemed. You are sons of God. I feel the young lady sitting there thinking, but I'm not a son, I'm a father. I want to be a daughter. You want to be a son. It's much better because a son gets the bulk of the inheritance. That's the point, you see. He gets the inheritance over his sisters. You're his son. He loves you. God's love for his people overcomes all evil in reaching us. There is nothing, no demon, no person, no evil that can stop God's love from reaching you. What did David say, Psalm 139? Whether in the, the heights or the depths, thou, God, sees me. You're there. You're loved.